Well, good evening. Good, good to see all you fellowship and folks. But I bring you greetings from Pastor Skip and also Pastor Chip, who are right now in India as we speak with K.P. Johanan and the whole team of Gospel for Asia. And it's just uh, a great time of ministry for them. Remember them in your prayers. Uh, it might be a challenging diet the, the next few weeks. Pray that the Lord keeps them strong and brings them back to us very safely. I know that he's praying for you even right now. Well, tonight we have a special guest. And he's not someone from a far country. He's one of our own. In fact, he's been here from the very beginning. And uh, God's used him to go out and plant a church up in Silver City. And uh, he's just a great pastor, longtime friend of the ministry, longtime member of this fellowship. Would you please welcome Pastor Joseph Gross. You know, it's amazing to be here this evening. When I first started coming to this church, there were maybe 50 people. And now it just blows my mind to see what God has done and just what God is doing here. Uh, in fact, when we first came to church here, my wife, I, we weren't married then. We were dating. And we heard Skip on the radio. And we were going to a Pentecostal church at that time. And, you know, when you go to a church like that, what, what we were learning every week was how to get saved, how to get saved, how to get saved. And, you know, pretty soon you're like, okay, I'm saved. Now what do I do? You know? <laughs> and so we, we heard Skip on the radio. And we came out to listen to him. And he was, they met over at the Far North Movie Theater then. And Skip played guitar. And these two young girls, uh, Laura and Lisa, I think, the DiJesu sisters were playing, uh, singing with Skip. And uh, we fell in love with the teaching of the Word of God, and we started to come here. And not too long after that, Skip married us. In fact, uh, let's see if there's a... There's Skip. <laughs> I, I had a feeling you might laugh because he looks so much different and I look so much the same. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, I grayed my hair a little bit so he'd feel better. But uh, no, Skip was such a blessing. I'll tell you, on that, on our wedding day... On our wedding day, um, Skip tells me we were sitting. This we got married at Roosevelt Park here in Albuquerque, and on our wedding day, uh, we were sitting up there, me and Skip, before my wife got there. And he said, "My car's right there. We can still leave." <laughs> he tells, and you know what? I'm really glad I didn't. Uh, we are coming up now on 27 years of marriage, so it's a real blessing. And, and according to Skip, he was we were the first couple he married in this fellowship. And so it's pretty kind of neat, isn't it? And uh, my wife's here, actually, my wife. And I have four children now. We obeyed the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And so we're here, uh, some of us. Why don't you stand up? My family's here, my wife and my two daughters. Yes. And uh, I have so many stories I could tell. But we need to get into the Word this evening. A lot of my other family members are here as well this evening. From I grew up in Bernalillo. And I, I went to school, uh, to school in Bernalillo until the 11th grade. Then I transferred to Cibola High School. I graduated from Cibola High School uh, back in 1978. Uh, yes, there were schools back then even. Uh, but uh, it's great to be here this evening. Open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, please. Revelation chapter 19 is where we're going to be at tonight. I realize you guys are going through the Bible and... Uh, the Bible from 30,000 feet. Well, we're going to, 
you know, come a little bit lower this evening and take a look at chapter 19. Just a quick laying of a foundation for this evening's study. At this point in the book, this is the last seven-year period called the Tribulation Period. At this point, we're past the dark days of God's judgments, the three sets of judgments that, that come upon the earth during that last seven years. We're past the seal judgments, the trumpets and the bowls. Also at this point, God has brought judgment upon religious and political Babylon, which happened in chapters 17 and 18. Babylon the great is fallen, fallen, the angel proclaimed in uh, chapter 18, verse 2. If you're wondering what is Babylon, well, Babylon was a satanic system or the satanic system that will be headed by the false prophet and the beast or the Antichrist that will deceive the whole world and lead the world astray from the Lord during that last seven-year period. It will fall by the mighty hand of God. In fact, in chapter 18, verse 8, it says, "For For strong is the Lord who judges her. Now, when the Lord did bring judgment upon Babylon, or or will bring judgment upon Babylon, that will mean that there will be a response from heaven. As the earth and all who are attached to religious and political Babylon mourn, weep, and lament, heaven's response is the total opposite. In fact, look at chapter 18, verse 20. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. One of the reasons that God brings judgment upon Babylon is that Babylon was guilty of the shedding of the blood of the saints. And so God deals with that system. In fact, look at verse 24 of chapter 18. It says, In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Now back in chapter 11, we were told earlier in the book of Revelation that this system, Babylon murdered the two witnesses, God's witnesses, that were sent by the Lord to bring the message of salvation to the world. And instead of responding, they murdered those two witnesses. And so there was persecution, and there will be persecution, upon the saints or the believers that are on the earth during that last seven-year period. In fact, when we talk about persecution, it's not anything new to the church. The early church suffered persecution. Even today, the church suffers persecution. In fact, in that part of the world where Skip is at, there's a lot of persecution against the believers there in India. Different parts of the world. In fact, statistically, they say that around 250,000 Christians a year die because of their faith in the world today. So, it's not anything new, but during that last seven-year period, there will be tremendous persecution against the believers on the planet. And in fact, they were so hardened during that, or they will be so hardened during that time, that after they murdered those two witnesses, they actually declared a holiday and exchanged gifts. So at this point in the book of Revelation, the shoe is sort of on the other foot now. Because what's happening here is that God brings down His vengeance upon their wickedness, and as He does, they begin to mourn and they begin to weep. But while that is happening on earth, heaven is rejoicing. And they're rejoicing because chapter 19 really does begin a brand new era when God's judgment is manifest and it brings about that which we have so long waited for, we have so long prayed for. I used to pray pray for it even though I didn't know I was praying for it. I was raised in the Catholic Church and I remember growing up and I learned certain prayers but I never really thought that much about what they meant. 
But part of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is what's going to come about here in chapter 19. A new day is dawning and darkness is going to be defeated finally. Now chapter 19 reveals some incredible events. We're not going to have time to look at all of them this evening. But I'm sure that when Skip gets to this portion, he'll focus in on some of these things. But there are two great feasts here in chapter 19. Uh, One of the feasts you want to be a part of, the other one you don't want to be a part of. And I would ask you this question, would you rather have dinner or would you rather be dinner? That's the question in this chapter. And so we have here the wedding uh, and, and also the wedding and the wedding feast of the bride. And uh, as Jesus, of course, is the bridegroom. This chapter also reveals to us some incredible, a very incredible event. One that we've waited for, that we continue to wait for, and that we look forward to. And that is the, the return or the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth with his bride. And he will return to conquer in power and in great glory. And he will defeat his enemies. And we will, if you read ahead, we won't have a time to look at it this this evening, but read ahead on your own. But there will be a massive war when Christ returns back. And that is called the Battle of Armageddon. It won't really be a war. It will be more of a wipeout as Jesus wipes out his enemies. And so that second feast that I said you wouldn't want to be a part of is the feast spoken of in chapter 19. It's called the Supper of the Great God where the birds of heaven come and they feast upon the dead bodies uh, there in the valley or there in Israel, including the valley of, of Megiddo there. And so finally the question to that bumper sticker will be answered. We have in our town a lot of people that are really new agey. Uh, Silver City is a very new age community. Uh, but they, there's a lot of people that have this bumper sticker and they drive around with this bumper sticker and it says, Who would Jesus bomb? Have you ever seen that one? Are there any of those here in Albu- I mean, Albuquerque at all? No? There are? Yeah, you've seen them? Well, I've seen that bumper sticker a lot in our town. And this answers the question as to who would Jesus bomb. And Because it, it tells us right here in Revelation 19 that he's going to bomb quite a few people. And so, so anyway, um, not that I'm happy about that or anything, but it will answer the question. Now, we're going to see, as we look at this chapter, there's a lot of rejoicing in this chapter. Because it's, it's a scene in heaven. There's going to be a wedding that's going to take place in heaven before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and look at our text in chapter 19. Let's look at the first three verses at least to start off with. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. We hear these words, and they've been spoken of here in the book of Revelation. But here in this chapter, the words metatauta. In the Greek, it's, uh, the words are after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after the downfall of the two Babylons, the religious Babylon and the political Babylon. Now, we hear for the first time in all of the New Testament, pretty amazing that we hear for the first time, the word, Alleluia. It's used four times in this chapter as an expression of praise to God. In the Old Testament, of course, it's something that all of us are familiar with. with. If you've read through the Psalms and you're a a person that reads through the Scripture, you're going to hear the word hallelujah in the Old Testament a lot. It literally means praise the Lord or praise Jehovah or Yahweh. 
And so chapter 9 fittingly starts out with praise because it is a proclamation from those that are in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And as we look at what happens here in this praise that's given to the Lord, we see with one voice we hear a great multitude of people begin to praise the Lord. Now when you think about who is this multitude of people that's worshiping the Lord in heaven? Well, it's everyone that has been born again. It's all of those that are believers and that are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what's amazing when you think about this? We're looking at this scene here, but yet when we look at this scene, we are going to be, if you are a believer here this evening, we will be a part of this scene. We will be the voices that are saying these very words while we are in heaven. So we're getting a glimpse of what it's going to be like for us. And so they begin to worship the Lord in one voice, just with this, this worship to the Lord in, in gratitude and praise. And, and it's really awesome when you think about what they're saying here. Hallelujah, salvation, glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. What are they praising the Lord for? Why are they praising Him? Well, first of all, they're praising Him for what He has brought about. They praise Him for salvation. Now, salvation is the most wonderful thing of all. As a Christian, that is what we are going to worship the Lord for when we get to heaven forever and ever. We're going to be so grateful for our salvation. Now, salvation is a, a really multifaceted word. In the Greek, it's the Greek, Greek word soteria. It means to deliver, or it can also mean saved, or safety, or rescue. It can mean preservation, deliverance from the molestation of enemies, it literally, literally speaks of the sum and the benefits and the blessings given to all of God's people. And so as they are there in heaven, they are worshiping, all of those that are in the presence of the Lord are worshiping the Lord for their salvation, for the salvation that God has brought about. They're the beneficiaries of salvation. Now we know that when we get to heaven, there's going to be different groups in heaven. Now I don't mean that there's going to be like a, a Baptist section over there and the Presbyterians over there and then the Catholics over there and the Methodists over there and then the Lutherans over there. And you know, it's not going to be like that at all. We know that there's going to be different groups of, of saints in heaven, but there's going to be the Old Testament saints, then there'll be the New Testament saints, and then there will be the tribulation saints. These, these believers that are going to be alive on the earth that give their lives to Christ during the tribulation period. But all of them are going to worship the Lord for the same thing. Jews and Gentiles. They're all worshiping the Lord because of His salvation. Why are we saved and how are we saved? Very, very important questions. The Bible is very clear that we're saved because of the love of God. We're not saved because we are lovable, but we're saved because God loves us. And He loves us with an unconditional love. Can you imagine if, if we had to earn the love of God in some way? But God loves all of us unconditionally. We're also saved because of the mercy of God, the grace of God. We know that salvation is a total gift. It is a free gift from the Lord. In fact, Titus chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that when the kindness and the love of our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of any righteous works that we have done, but because of His mercy. And He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we know when we look at the whole idea of salvation is that it's the grace of God, the mercy of God that reaches down to us in our messed up condition. And many of us have lived there. I came out of that. I came out of drugs and alcohol and all of that stuff. And the Lord rescued me from that. And He was merciful to me. 
And He's forgiven me my sins. And that's what's so wonderful about understanding and coming to that place of knowing Christ is that your sins can be forgiven no matter what you've done. And so that's why there's going to be so much praise in heaven because we're all going to be there because we know that the Lord has forgiven us. But we have to be born again. And that's what He says. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that is a must. In other words, if we are going to go to heaven, we have to be prepared to go there. We have to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's what salvation is all about. Jesus came into this world, laid down His life on a cross. And by His death, He paid in full the debt of our sins. He took upon Himself the wrath of God. And of course, God's wrath was poured out upon innocent Jesus. Jesus was completely and totally innocent. He was without sin. He was spotless. But He died in the place of the guilty. He died in your place and He died in my place. And that's why the Bible talks about us now being justified. The word justified means to be declared innocent. It's not that we weren't innocent at all. But the Lord has declared us innocent because of what Christ has done for us. And Skip has said it many times, I learned it from him. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's the idea of being justified. That's how God looks at us now. And so it's such a a blessing to know that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And when we get to heaven, one of the things that we'll be worshiping the Lord for over and over is the fact that we have salvation given to us. We had salvation given to us by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And so we're going to be praising Him for eternity. And, And so we also see here that they are worshiping the Lord for other reasons. And we'll get to those here in a little bit. But all of this is because the worship always is focused on the Lord because of what He has done. They also praise Him in verse 2. Notice, in in verse 2 it says, For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. They praise Him for another reason now. They praise the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord in heaven. We will be worshiping the Lord in heaven for His justice. You know what? In my mind, it is the epitome of not only arrogance and pride, but utter ignorance to ever, ever, for any human being to ever accuse God of being unjust or unfair. To accuse God of wrongdoing. We, a mere mortal, accusing God. That's just plain ludicrous, if you think about it. It's laughable, it's absurd, it's foolish, it's preposterous. It's grotesque and whatever else the thesaurus says. (laughs) I mean, look it up. There's a whole bunch of words in there. But we know that God is true. And God is righteous. True and righteous are His judgments. And He's going to be praised for that. We're going to praise Him for that. Over and over the Bible makes clear about God. That God is true and God is just. Exodus, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says, He is the rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Psalm 19 says, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So He's being praised because He has justly judged the great harlot for her sins. We're told that she had corrupted the earth. How had she corrupted the earth? Through her fornication. Now we know that the word fornication is a Greek word pornea. 
The basic word speaks about sexual activity outside of marriage under any circumstances. God defines marriage very clearly for us in the book of Genesis. Jesus uh, clarifies that or reiterates what marriage is in Matthew chapter 19. But fornication or pornea is sex outside of marriage under any conditions whatsoever. But in this case, it's being used in the spiritual sense. So she had corrupted the earth with her fornication and its spiritual adultery is what he's talking about here. And so she had brought in a false, this harlot had brought in a false religious system, a belief system. And so as we look at this, we know that in God's estimation, uh, as He you know, kind of reveals to us why he's bringing judgment upon this harlot is he's dealing with the fact that she had deceived people into believing something that was not true. One of the things that God never ever compromises on, of course God never compromises on anything, but this one, of course, we know, is never ever changed. It has never changed. And that is the fact that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. There are not... You know, many roads to God. There's not two roads to God. There's not three. There's not five. There's not ten. There's only one way to heaven. And Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So what had this harlot done in bringing this spiritual fornication or this spiritual deception into the world? Well, she had corrupted the world by bringing a different message, a different gospel. Now, why is this so dangerous? Well, when you think about it, it's dangerous for this reason. When a person is deceived into believing something that is not true, their soul is in danger of being damned to hell. Deceived people end up, or can end up, in perdition. Today, today think about it. Look at the thousands of cults that exist in the world today. Or even the pseudo-Christian religions that teach falsehood. We have lots of them in our own community in Silver City. There's a plethora of them. And they are spiritually dangerous because they corrupt people by leading them astray from the Lord and into something that cannot really save them. From a personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Peter, when he was preaching in the book of Acts, he said, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so any belief system, and Skip has shared this with you, I've heard him say it. Any belief system that does not have Jesus Christ or place Jesus Christ at the very core or the very center. Or who puts Jesus on the outside or down the ladder in importance. Or in any way tries to lessen who he is. His deity, his incarnation. Anything like that, that is a corruption or a perversion of the truth. And you'll hear people say like, Oh, well, Jesus, you know, he was a good teacher. Or, oh, Jesus, he was a prophet. The Muslims call Jesus a prophet. And you'll hear people say he was an enlightened one. He was one of many enlightened ones. But whenever you hear that, that is a perversion of the truth. And as we see how God deals with it here in the book of Revelation, He deals with this whole idea of being worthy of judgment. And so Babylon had corrupted the world with its religious lies. And God calls it a very strong word here. He calls it fornication. 
And so religious falsehood is not something that any of us should take lightly. You know what religious falsehood really is? It is soul terrorism. Because the devil wants people lost and in hell with him and to believe a lie, and a lie can land you in eternal torment. And that's why when you think about any, any system that does not, or, or religious belief system that does not point a person to a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but tells you you must believe in something or someone else or in some other way in order to be saved, we know that that is not from God. It is not. It doesn't matter how nice or how sincere the people may be. But the devil is a liar and the father of lies, including religious lies. Now also, they the multitude, in a loud voice, give God praise because He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her, we're told here in verse 2. You know that there's coming a day when God will avenge all of the sufferings of His people? We go through sufferings as believers. The Lord promised that. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you also. We, we ought to be... I think we ought to have the mindset as believers that that is part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. When I gave my life to the Lord, you know, 27 years ago, it's something that I discovered early on. That there's a cost to discipleship. And, and if you're going to follow Christ, you're not going to always be popular, especially not going to be popular with the world, and you're not going to be popular with the devil. And so we find over and over that when Christ returns, He's going to avenge all of the sufferings of His people. You can look at on your own at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it tells us right there that He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you when He returns in power and in great glory. Romans chapter 12 says, the Lord says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Now that's not a subject that we like to talk about or that we hear a lot about, you know, maybe in this church you will, will, but, you know, people don't like to talk about the, the judgment of God or the wrath of God, yet it is something that we find in the scripture, and that God is going to avenge, He's going to bring, bring wrath upon this planet. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense, their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, the things to come hastened upon them. So why is the Lord bringing vengeance upon this system, this worldly system, this antichrist system? And this system today, it, there already is an antichrist system in the world today. There are many people that are against Christ. And I, I am of the opinion that I think the tide is turning against us as believers we can see what's happening in our government. If you follow any of the things that are going on and some of the, the laws that they're trying to pass in our country right now, the tide is turning against us as believers. And we may come under persecution. We should be ready for that. We should recognize that. But there is coming a day when the Lord will, will bring judgment upon our enemies. In fact, here in, in Revelation 19, we see that the reason the Lord deals with them is because of the bloodshed. They had shed the innocent blood of God's people. And so the Lord is going to bring judgment for that reason. One of the sins that the Lord hates, we're told, in the book of Proverbs, is seven things that are detestable to the Lord. He hates the shedding of innocent blood. And the, the Lord's people are going to be persecuted during the tribulation period. And many of them will lose their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But like I said, that's already happening in the world. 
You know what I wonder? Here's what I wonder when I think about the shedding of innocent blood. I wonder how long before the Lord deals with the United States for 45 to 50 million babies whose blood has been shed. The innocent blood of babies. And yet we have leaders in this nation that are trying to expand upon that. Guys, we're, we're in a bad way. This nation is not going in the right direction spiritually. We need to make some major changes. Otherwise, I just fear for this nation. And so we see that it's God who institutes this judgment. But He institutes this judgment because they had taken the lives of the innocent. Do you know that God is the one that instituted the death penalty in the Old Testament? If God instituted the death penalty, it cannot be wrong. Genesis chapter 9, the Lord tells us, If a man sheds a man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. For, and this is why the death penalty was instituted. For, in the image of God, has God made man. Do you realize that when a human being's life is taken, that human being is made in the very image of God. To murder a human being is a stri- to strike a blow against the very image of God. And that's why the death penalty was instituted by God. And so we look at this, but God is going to bring the death penalty upon these people for the shedding of the blood of His people. God is going to deal with them for what they've done. And so the death penalty obviously is scriptural. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 10, the the scripture talks about the guilt of bloodshed upon a land. That when bloodshed is not dealt with, that, that... then then the Lord will end up dealing with those people because they are not bringing justice when there is wickedness, the wickedness of murder. And so we look at this and you think, well, where are we headed as a nation? Now, we see it's payday. God is going to bring judgment upon them. It's payday, which is praise day in heaven. It's payday on earth, praise day in heaven. Look at verse 3. And it says, again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So the Lord brings His judgment upon these two systems, the religious and the political Babylon. And as this judgment falls upon this system or these systems, there's praise in heaven. And now we notice this is not a temporary judgment, it's eternal. We notice that it's forever and ever. That's what it tells us there in verse 3. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so when the Lord deals with these people. It's going to be for an eternity. So you don't want to end up on the enemy side of Jesus, I'll tell you that. A lot of people don't like to talk about hell either. Another unpopular subject. But you know, Jesus warned about hell and spoke about hell more than he ever talked about heaven. It's a real place. Just like heaven is a real place. And when we end up in either place, we're going to be there forever and ever and ever. And there is no changing places once you're already there. So, you know, we ought to think about that carefully the next time we think that the the, the pleasures of sin, uh, temporary pleasures of sin are worth it. If you're living, I want to exhort you, if you're an unbeliever and you're living and practicing in sin right now, you really better think carefully about what you're doing. You better consider whether or not it's really worth it for a few years of pleasure versus an eternity of sorrow and suffering. To me, that's a really, really bad trade-off. That's a bad investment. Now, at this proclamation of praise, there's another response. Look what happens in verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. 
Amen means so be it, or may it be fulfilled. And so we see the 24 elders. Many believe that they represent the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Also, we see the four living creatures. They are angelic beings who are constantly in the presence of the Lord, worshiping the Lord. They all begin to worship. And they're worshiping in conjunction with the great multitude multitude in heaven. All of them fall before the Lord on their faces in reverence before a holy God. Another thing that I really believe that we have lost in the church today is a holy reverence for God. In heaven, you can see that there is a holy reverence for God, and we have lost that reverence, that respect for the Lord. Look at verse 5, another proclamation. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. So there's a call now for all to come to worship the Lord, all who serve God, all who fear God, small and great. And hopefully we will be in that category. Hopefully you are already in that category right now. You are a worshiper of God. And so there's a call for that. Look at verse 6. Another wave. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, as, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What do we see in heaven here? We see wave after wave of praise. They're praising the Lord. Why? Because He's worthy of praise. They, they are worshiping Him. And notice they say there in verse 6, For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. You know that there is no other being in all of the universe that is omnipotent? Only God. And God just had proved Himself as being omnipotent by overthrowing and defeating the Antichrist and the two Babylons. The word means, omnipotent means almighty. Or He who holds sway over all things. He is the ruler of all. You know that God is without any limitations whatsoever. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And no one can even come close to comparing to God. And that's what omnipotence means, that God is limitless in power. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. And you know what? That's who we're trusting in. That's who we're trusting in when we come to the Lord in prayer. That's who we're trusting in when we cast all of our cares upon Him. We're we're trusting in the One who is almighty, who is omnipotent. Not only is He omnipotent, He's omniscient. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Every detail about your life. That there are no secrets before the Lord. He He has infinite awareness. Understanding and insight. He's also omnipresent. In other words, God fills the whole universe. He's everywhere all at once. He watches all. He sees all. He hears all. He knows all. He is boundless, infinite, immeasurable, unending, unrestricted, and unrestrained. And so they praise Him for who He is. Because He's worth praising And so He rules. He reigns. And you know what? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. And so, what a a sound. John is hearing these things. He's seeing these things. And as he writes down this book, the book of Revelation, we have insight into what happens in the future. And insight as to what's going on in heaven. And so he hears these things and he compares the sound to many waters or mighty thunderings. 
And it's really awesome because as these voices are sounding, that's how it sounds to John. Now the next reason, reason for acclamation of praise and worship really involves us. Look at verse 7. This is where it really gets great. Verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. What a great verse. It is now time for the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb. And it takes place in heaven near the end of the tribulation, before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some say it could be at the beginning of the tribulation. The church is going to be caught up into heaven, we believe, as pre-tribulation rapture people. Calvary Chapel holds to that view. That the church will be taken up into heaven, and it will be during that seven-year period that we will be with the Lord and the marriage will take place between Jesus and His church. And so it's going to be an awesome event. He's going to come for us, and then at the end of the tribulation, He's going to come back with us, His bride. And so it's time now, we're told here, for the bride and Jesus to be married. And Ephesians chapter 5 calls the church the bride. The Second Corinthians chapter 11 calls the church the bride. I love weddings. Weddings are great, like I showed you the picture of ours. And I love doing weddings now. It's such a blessing. But there's going to come a day when we're going to be involved in a wedding with the Lord as His church. And it's going to be awesome as we're caught up to meet the Lord. And then there's going to be that wedding, the marriage, and then the wedding feast. And all of it, you know that all of it is a fulfillment and really a picture of Jewish weddings. Now we don't really get it that well because we're Gentiles and we live in this generation. But when Jesus spoke about weddings back then and talked about His coming, there was a, a picture that He was painting in the minds of the people. Because back then weddings were prearranged. The marriage or the wedding came in phases. Basically there were three uh, phases or, or stages of the wedding. First there was the agreement or the covenant or what was called the engagement. It was made between the father of the groom and the father of the bride. It could happen actually when the son and the daughter were actually just little children. They would make an agreement in their Jewish fashion. Oy vey, oy vey, you have a daughter, I have a son, as Miriam, you know, you know, whatever. And so they would, uh, excuse me, I just kind of learned that when I was in New York. So, um, but there was, this, there was this agreement that they would make. They would make this covenant between the families. And then phase two, after the engagement, was the betrothal. Now usually the betrothal began when the girl was 12 to 15 years old. At this point, the bride and the groom would meet, perhaps even for the first time. Then there would be a negotiation, and it was called the bridal price. And the wealthier the father of the son, or the more beautiful or skilled the bride, the higher the price. Now, once the agreement, uh, the agreement was made, then the couple would take a sip from a single cup of wine. At that point, they were legally betrothed or married. But during the betrothal period, the one-year betrothal, the couple could not consummate the marriage. They would not sleep together or drink wine or anything like that. But they could get to know each other. But this was a really exciting time, this period of the betrothal. It was exciting because what would happen is that at this time the bride would, would wear a veil. And the veil was symbolic that she was taken. And you know what our veil is as, as a church? Our veil that we are taken is the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit now. And during that time what ha- would happen, the bridegroom would then, he would go home and begin construction of what in Hebrew is called the little mansion. 
or their new home. It would be a, a room that would be built onto his father's house. And when the father decided the preparations were complete, the son, then wearing a crown on his head, was sent off to go and get the bride for the wedding. But see, during this time also, the bride would be working on her wedding dress. So there was this period of time when they were busy. He was preparing a mansion. She was working on her wedding dress. And then, and then what would happen is that the bride, knowing that the time was drawing near, would, would gather her friends together and, and they would await the arrival of the groom. And so we see the, the parable of the ten virgins who were the bride's friends. And there were ten of them. And five of them had oil in their lamps and they were ready. And five of them weren't ready. Very important for us to be ready when the Lord comes. And so we as the bride are to be getting ready. We're to be looking for the bridegroom. I want to read to you something that John Corson has written. Many of you probably know John Corson. He's been a Calvary Chapel pastor for many years. I love what he says about this whole Jewish wedding thing. He says, On the day of his wedding, the groom and his friends, particularly his best man, would walk through the streets with trumpets blaring, taking the most scenic route or the circular route to the bride's house. Already attired in her wedding dress, when the bride heard the sounding of the trumpet, she would rise and receive a blessing from her father. Then she would run out the door and meet to be met by the groom in the streets. Together, they would make their way to the four-postered canopy which, under which they would be married. The ceremony itself consisted not of vows, which were Roman and Greek in tradition, but simply a reading of the contract that had been drawn up a year before, along with the blessing. So there was a contract. They were betrothed. And guess what, guys? We're under contract. We, the church. We've been betrothed to the Lord. The procession would then continue on to the little mansion where the best man would stand outside the door while the marriage was consummated. While he would, why was he standing outside the door? To wait for word from the groom that the bride was a virgin, as evidenced by a blood-spotted bedsheet. If the bride were indeed a virgin, the wedding celebration would continue for seven days, or as we would call it, uh, a week. (laughs) And so uh, Daniel calls this seven-year period the 70th week. It's called the 70th week of Daniel, that we will be in the presence of the Lord. Now, if if she was not a virgin, the guests would go home and the bride would face either divorce or death by stoning. So it was very important to be a virgin back then. All those seven days spent... In addition to one's father's house, while friends and family party just outside the door may not sound like the ideal honeymoon to us, but in the Jewish culture, being waited on for a week was glorious. You see, this would be the only time in their entire lives when the bride and the groom would do no labor. Remember, there were no vacations in those days, no holiday cruises, no jets, no Maui. The one and only time people were able to kick back was during their marriage week. And during this week, the bride would never... Be seen. The groom, on the other hand, would occasionally come out and greet the guests before bringing back food and gifts to his bride. After seven days, the groom would present his bride to his family, friends, and community, at which time the marriage feast would begin. Looking again at this process, it becomes a picture-perfect analogy of the bridegroom's relationship with us, the church. Just as a Jewish father chose whom his child would marry, it is mind-boggling to realize that our Heavenly Father has chosen us to be the bride for His Son. As proof of this intent, He paid the bride price based first upon His own wealth. 
How rich is God? Neither all the gold in the world or all the galaxies in the universe would begin, could begin to reflect His wealth. Instead, the bride price God paid for us was something for, of which He only had one and was most precious to Him. He paid the price of His Son. So how much does the Lord love us? How valuable are you to the Lord? He gave His Son. That's how worth it you are. And so it's a wonderful picture. We are the bride of Christ. And so as we look at this beautiful, this beautiful wedding, this whole idea of the wedding in the presence of the Lord, understanding that we are the chosen bride of Christ, a great price has been paid for us. We have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. It cost the Father His best. And we are now betrothed, we're taken. And that Jesus is gone. You know that Jesus is gone now to the Father's house. That's what He said. I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. So Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. But there's going to come a time when the trumpet will sound and we will be swept off of our feet and we will be caught up into heaven to be married to the Lord. And it's all so awesome to think about. And that's what verse 7 is telling us. But what are we now as believers, what are we to be doing We're to be awaiting and getting ready for the bridegroom's return. Let me ask you, how are we to be living as believers? How are we to be making ourselves ready? First of all, we need to put off the old person. We we need to put off the old man. We have to let go of, of and repent of all of our sins. We need to learn to live a new life now that we have been born again. We have been born from above. We need to put on the righteousness of Christ. And we're called as Christians now, not to walk according to the flesh, but to walk according to the Spirit. We're to throw off, the Bible tells us, everything that that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And we are no longer to indulge in the flesh or in the world as believers. I know that most of you here tonight are Christians. Most of you here, not all of you probably, but most of you here have come to that point when you have truly before the Lord confessed your sins, you have repented of your sins, and you have received Christ into your heart. And you now have a personal relationship with Him. But I want to give you a word of exhortation to all of you who profess to follow Jesus Christ. To all of you who profess to be Christians. To anyone who names Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, are you truly living the life that the Lord has called you to live? I believe based upon the time that we live in, I remember when I first got saved and started coming to Calvary. I was so excited that Jesus could come back at any time. And you know, the scripture tells us that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. His coming is so close. And we have to be getting ready. We need to be living totally serious and obeying the Lord. It calls for serious self-examination of our lives, to be honest, to be truthful in evaluating how we're living before the Lord. You know what I'm afraid of? Here's what I'm afraid of in seeing the church, recognizing and looking at how the church is. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that a lot of us are not prepared, that we have not made ourselves ready, and we're not making ourselves ready. A lot of people, a lot of us in the church are living disobedient lives. Christians that are living in open sin or in secret sin. Many who are professing to believe in Jesus Christ, but are compromising with their flesh. Many of them involved in drinking to excess, smoking pot, doing drugs, 
sleeping around, living together, being involved in adultery and divorce, lying and cheating and stealing and holding on to bitterness and hatred and jealousy. So many of these sins that are in the church that should not be in our lives as believers. We're called to repent of these things. Covetous, unforgiveness, greed, the sins of the tongue abound in the church. You hear so often Christians, what's the difference between us and the world? Christians slandering each other, gossiping and cussing, filthy language, dirty jokes, taking the name of the Lord in vain. And you know what? God's not pleased with that. Do you think that that's the kind of bride that the Lord wants? The Lord doesn't want us to live like that. What about the area of pornography? I want to read to you something. Hopefully I can get through this quickly before we run out of time. But listen to, the, listen to what's going on. And this pertains to the church, folks. Listen to what's going on with pornography. The pornography industry is a $57 billion a year industry worldwide. The United States spends $30 billion plus with some 30 million viewers. There are now in excess of 4 million porn sites on the internet. More money is made on porn than all sports teams combined, even the Dallas Cowboys. There are some 390 million pages of porn on the internet. There are now 100,000 child porn sites on the internet. 30% of all unsolicited emails involve pornography. In the United States, 68 million Google hits are, are, are performed daily searching for pornography. 90 to 95% of high schoolers have viewed hardcore porn by the age of 17. So, think about this, parents. If you think little Johnny's in there studying with, on his computer, you better check again. The largest group of porn viewers is between the age of 12 to 17. And so Satan is getting his hooks in our young people at a very early age through pornography. The average age of first hardcore viewing on the internet is 11 years old. And is it a teen problem only? Listen to this one. In a recent Promise Keepers event, 53% of men polled admitted to viewing pornography in the last seven days before the event. So this is a problem with men in the church. It's conservatively estimated that one-third of men in the church are struggling with pornography. In other words, of every 100 men, that means 33 to 34 men are likely to be addicted to pornography. And these are men in the church. 47% of Christians admit pornography is a problem in their homes. More than half of men outside the church are involved in viewing pornography. But is this only a problem for men? I know some of you ladies are probably sitting there thinking, Oh, those men are such scumbags. Those, oh, they make me sick, you know. I don't know if that's how ladies think, but maybe. (laughs) But just so you know, ladies, that 30% of visitors to porn sites are now women. Women sign up for sexual chat rooms two to one over men. So it's not just a a male problem, it's also a female problem. There are now porn conventions popping up all over the country, giving out free pornography. 47% are are funding pornography in some fashion. People that are watching pornography in their homes are actually funding pornography. Listen to this, A, a pastor named Greg Gross um, from I think you can find this on triplexchurch.com or something like that, says that if Christians alone would stop supporting the pornography industry, it would take a major financial hit. 
Pornography is the secret, the dirty little secret sin of the church. At least they tell themselves it's secret. Guys, God sees all. God knows what's going on. The Bible says that nothing in all of creation is hidden from His sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God sees all. He knows all. And so we are called as the church to be a pure bride. Listen to this one. This one's really sad. 30 to 60% of pastors are viewing pornography. What is wrong with this picture? These are some stern warnings. Think about the consequences. What happens when you get involved in sin? It can shipwreck your faith. It can shipwreck your marriage, destroy your marriage, your ministry, your family, your children, and even the church. You know that in the 60s there were less than 1,000 porn bookstores in the United States. Now there are over 80 million porn outlets in the United States. Isn't that crazy? It's so dangerous. And how many of us have it right there at our fingertips, even in our own homes through the internet? And so guys, I'm I'm exhorting you in this way as a believer that we're called to a pure life as Christians. We see here that the bride had made herself ready. We the church need to repent. Remember there was a warning to the church of Laodicea, a warning to them because they were the compromising church, they were the lukewarm church. And the Lord says to the lukewarm church, if you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth, Jesus said. A lot of us in the church are not taking seriously enough our call to be holy and to be pure as believers. And we need to start doing that. We need to make ourselves ready. It's time that we come clean before the Lord and that we get our hearts right and start living for Jesus Christ. And that there's no more compromise in our lives. This evening, if you're a believer, then realize that you are are the bride of Christ. And He wants a pure bride. He wants a pure virgin. He wants a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but one that is holy and blameless. And you know what? You know what we can do, as James says, you adulterous people. You know what? He said, don't love the world. Don't get involved in the world. Don't be involved in those kinds of things. You were to leave those things behind. We can, as a Christian, we can, as the church, play the harlot and be an an adulteress against Jesus Christ. But we need to be making ourselves ready. And here's how we do it. Look at verse 8. He says, And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How are we to make ourselves ready? By living righteously. By living godly. Living for the Lord in the way that we act, in in our deeds, our words, our thoughts, everything. But I think that the church, and we need to repent of this. I'm calling the church, and I'm talking to this, this church, our church, the whole church in general. All of us as believers need to come back to the Lord in our hearts and begin to live pure. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 says, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. But are we doing that? Are we purifying ourselves physically and spiritually? There's a lot of things that can contaminate us. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
But just as He who called you to be holy, so be in holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 says, It is God's will that you should be holy. That you should avoid all types of sexual sin. And that each one of you should live self-controlled and in a way that is holy and honorable and not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. How sad it is that there's not a lot of difference between Christians and how we're living and how the world is living. Our divorce rate's just about the same. People living together in the church, sexual sin going on in the church. What's wrong? You see, the Lord's calling us to be, to be different, to be a set-apart people. We're called not to be impure, but to live a holy life. James says, religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, is to keep oneself from being defiled or polluted by the world. And so as a Christian, are we being the church, the pure bride that the Lord is calling us to be? We're called to do our part to keep our lives pure. You know that no marriage can last unless there is fidelity And we, the bride, have to be faithful even as Jesus is faithful to us. He's faithful to us. He loves us. But we're to love Him back. And the way that we prove our love to Him, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. We're called to this as as believers. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not living like that, that tonight you would make that recommitment. And if you're not a believer, that tonight you would commit your heart to Christ. We need to make ourselves ready. We need to stop living lukewarm Christian lives. We need to live holy before the Lord. Because the Lord is coming back. But He wants us to make ourselves ready. And so if you will, bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we are so grateful that You love us. That You love us with an everlasting love. That You also love us with an unconditional love. But also, Lord, we know that you love us and give us our responsibilities to love you back. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to all of our hearts here this evening. If there's anyone, or there's lots of us, Lord, that are not really living for you and we've, we've become lukewarm or we've lived half-heartedly for you, that tonight would be a night of fresh commitment, of recommitment. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's lost... They're not saved. They don't even belong to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to know you tonight, that needs forgiveness of their sins, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts, Lord. That tonight would be that night of new beginnings. That they could be forgiven of their sins and begin to walk with you. Lord, we know that the bottom line is that if we want to go to heaven, we have to come on your terms. You said that we must repent of our sins. You said that we must submit our lives and surrender our hearts to you. You said, Lord, that we must take up our cross daily and follow you. And Lord, if we're not willing to do that, then we know that heaven is not going to be a place. There will not be a place for us in heaven. We know that heaven is a prepared place, Lord, for a prepared people. I pray that tonight, Lord, our hearts would be made right with you. Prepare us, Lord, for that day that you come back, that we might be part of that number that is ready, that is living for you, that is looking for you, that is honoring you. 
We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.